You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Prehistories podcast. Say it quick and it sounds fine. Uh, where we're going to explore the evidence behind books set in our prehistoric past and past judgment on whether they are accurate or not. Not really. No, we're going to look at how storytelling can explore areas that archaeologists can't reach. Um, I'm very much supportive of the various storytellers who have used our prehistoric past. Um, On this episode, we're going to be discussing The Clan of the Cave Bear by Jean M. Owl. And I'm joined today by um, Rebecca Ragsykes, who is the Marie Curie Actions Fellow at the University of Bordeaux and uh, digs up the Amazons. Hello, Rebecca. Hi. How are you? I'm all right, yeah. It's pretty hot here in Bordeaux. (laughs) Yeah, it must be lovely. (laughs) How long have you been in Bordeaux now? Um... I've been here since this time two years ago now. Um, I had a bit of time out because uh, I had a baby, so I've got some maternity leave. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it's coming to an end in October. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> it must be lovely to be out of France for full time and so close to such lovely archaeology as well. Yeah, there is an awful lot of uh, Neanderthal stuff very, very close. We've got all the uh, mm-hmm. sites in the Dordogne, but really the whole of France has an incredibly rich record. Yeah, that that's one thing I really love about France is the archaeology. Um, I'm also joined by Matthew Pope, who is a research and teaching fellow at UCL, and also digs up Neanderthals. Hi, Matt. Hello, Kim. How are you? I'm fine. Yeah, good to be speaking to you. Yes, I Thanks. wish I did t- dig up Neanderthals. <laughs> Usually, it's just the things they leave behind. So I've not been lucky enough to yet dig up a Neanderthal in person. Yeah, this is it, isn't it? Well, we'll we'll be talking about a little bit about what we do actually find um, that is evidence of Neanderthal presence in Europe in a little bit. Um, So what we're going to do is uh, I ask you guys um, something about the evidence behind the books. Then I'm going to read a little extract and then we discuss how accurately we think it portrays the evidence. Now, I'd like to just say very quickly, how exciting is it that there's going to be a TV series <laughs> made of this book with the executive producer Ron Howard? It's really that... exciting. Well, yes. As long as it's better than the film, I'll, I'll be uh, pleased. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen the film, actually, but it's uh, out in, late, uh, in the 80s, wasn't it, with Daryl Hannah? Yeah, <laughs> I saw the film. I saw the film in the eighties, and I thought it was brilliant in the eighties. But I haven't seen it as a grown-up, so um, yeah, <laughs> I'll probably not view it ever again. So I can still think it was brilliant. Yeah, that's probably the best way. It looks like on the um, in the trailer for it, the very the teaser for the TV series that um, the woman who is playing Ayla is kind of wearing some of the same makeup. Uh, as uh, in the Daryl Hannah version, um, so I'm not entirely sure why they're doing that. But anyway, well, they're black across quite... the eyes. Yeah, yeah. That's I, I was wondering about that as well because they could actually argue for some evidence uh, for that. So, but we can talk about that later if you want. But yeah, that sounds good. Well, I wanted to um, to focus on Neanderthals um, who appear in *Clan of the Cave Bear* um, as rounded humans with uh, wonderful culture um but becky could you give us uh, an overview of um neanderthals in europe or where they're around and what what kind of um life they, they would have had um yeah sure um okay so essentially um people have for a long time seen neanderthals as um sort of the archetypal other type of ancient human they're the ones that are most frequently featured in popular culture and things like this so even the word is familiar to people but um i think the way that people perceive the archaeological record is actually um sort of less true to the real diversity of of what they 
the lives that they had. Um, they mm. sort of uh, evolved from the groups that were already in Europe um, for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years. And what we would start calling early Neanderthals, based mostly on their anatomy, um, is roughly around 400,000 years. Um, and they disappear from the record in terms of... Um, uh, individuals that we would see skeletally as Neanderthals um, around 40,000 or slightly later as well. Um, mm. This is the, the issue where things get complicated because you have what in terms of the bones um, is identified as Neanderthals but then you have their material culture so the archaeology essentially the, the stone tools and the archaeological culture that is associated with Neanderthals is broadly termed um, Middle Paleolithic, in particular um, Mousterian, uh, which uh, comes from a type site in France uh, called Le Moustier. And so over the whole span of time that they were living, they certainly were um, here and surviving the, the Ice Ages in Europe, because there were multiple Ice Ages. But they were also here when uh, conditions were even warmer than now, when you have uh, full forests, hippos, monkeys, things like this. So this is perhaps something that people might find a bit surprising, Neanderthals that they're not quite so familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I think you, it, it's often talked about how they, they were very good at surviving the Ice Ages because of their anatomy, but... Um, uh, and yet they found, you know, hunting some of these these animals during the, the war period. Um, Matt, Europe did look quite different um, during the time that the Antiles were around and, and changed quite quite a lot as well. Um, do you, could you give us a little bit of a, a background on that? Yeah, I mean, we're dealing with such a big time span here and mm. such a lot of variation. It's kind of impossible to say, you know, what did what did Europe look like? Because you just yeah. it's changing. It's changing all the time. You know, we're currently in um, what we call an interglacial period. It's a period where the planet's climate is relatively warm. Sea levels are high. The atmosphere isn't particularly arid. And if we were here without any agricultural human intervention across Europe, the kind of natural vegetation would be relatively dense forest deciduous in the north Mediterranean woodland sort of towards towards the south. But these interglacials, these warm periods, they're relatively short lived um, episodes of climate. In, if we go back, say, through the last six or seven hundred thousand years, maybe only five to ten percent of the time is the planet as warm as it is now. The rest of the time, the planet is cooler, sea levels are lower, and um, in terms of you know atmospheric conditions, it's a bit more arid. We find Neanderthals in a whole wide variety of different environments and different um, sort of vegetational and ecological settings. Yes, we find them in cool conditions and, and, and cold conditions, but we, we shouldn't be thinking of them as any kind of specialist for, for those conditions at all, because mm. they seem to thrive in, in such a variety of different settings. What's exciting is that we can actually look across this time and see their responses and how their responses might be different depending on, on local resources. One of the responses one of their adaptations is that Neanderthals move. So where we work in Northern Europe, what we see are big breaks in the record, big periods where Neanderthals aren't here at all, mainly because it's too damn cold and there's <laughs> nothing nothing to eat. Um, we talk about them as going locally extinct. That doesn't mean the population has gone extinct. It means they've simply probably moved away. They've moved south. They've moved into to refuge areas. And this mm. mobility is probably one of their, their great adaptations long term, that when conditions become um, intolerable, tolerable, they can, they can move um, and find conditions that are more favourable. Yeah, so they're not, exa they're not entirely um, fixed to a certain area. They don't... Um more like um, some of the other animals that would have been around that moved when they got too cold as well. So how, Becky, how human would Neanderthals have been? Oh, um, <laughs> that's pretty much the question that's been keeping people going for a decade. Um, Ah, well, you have to define human first, you know, that's the thing. Um, are you saying how much like us are they? Um, or, well, okay, so we, we can actually start there. What do we mean by us? You know, we are a species, but there is enormous diversity in the way that modern humans make their lifestyles, uh, the experiences they have, the skills that they have, the foods they eat, the places they live, all of these things. 
similarly, I think people are really waking up to the fact um, that seeing and discussing Neanderthals as a species is actually cramping their style somewhat. Um, they, as as Matt said, you know, they, they lived across such huge spans of time and in different environments and in different regions. You know, they're, they're present from parts of Russia right down into the Near East, the Levant, right into France, up into um, Britain. You know, they're, they're in huge different kinds of um, worlds, essentially. So we, in a way, we shouldn't really expect them to have similar responses um everywhere anyway so in that sense you know we have to kind of expect that there will be um variability in the archaeological record from a from a base point having said that um at the moment for me i kind of i change how i feel about them quite a lot which is right because you know we find new evidence and and the picture changes but i think most people who work on them um would probably refer to them as ancient humans but possibly not everybody would call them human that's kind of a fuzzy distinction but um i think it depends on on what you think defines us as as a species homo sapiens in terms of what i think um whether they were human to the extent of something that would be in, in immediately recognisable if we were transported back into the past. I, I don't think so. I think there were there would be things that would look unfamiliar um, that might be surprising. And to people, I think that's the thing. Um, I see Neanderthals as people, but yeah. I wouldn't necessarily call them um, human, like exactly like us. I, I really don't think. Um, I think with the evidence we have, it's it's one of the most challenging things to do is to work on this ancient evidence where so little of it has survived and try to build um, pictures and inferences um, with what we have. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. What does Matt think? <laughs> what does Matt think? Well, I think this, this, is where, this is where the fun really comes in. Yeah, exactly. About Neanderthals. In that uh, it's all about perspective. It's all about the perspective. Just Just like we have this completely misguided perspective to the planet because we've been lucky enough to be born in an interglacial you know in the planet's climate um in terms of perception of human we've all been born into we've all experienced something that's completely atypical for the human experience in evolutionary terms i.e there's only one species of human on the planet you know that probably you know depending on 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 which evidence you look at that's probably only been the case for maybe 15 20 30,000 years that's a small small percentage of the human evolutionary journey if we're going to take it back to uh, back to to homo habilis you know whatever 2.7 2.7 2 2.8 million years ago so we're seeing um a very atypical arrangement on the on the planet every other uh, you know generation going back into prehistory would have been sharing the planet with other humans even if they hadn't encountered other human species the possibility existed there you know there would have been stories there would have been stories of other people you know your, your ancestors having encountered them or they may be people you glimpse or they may be people you're interacting with i think they're undoubtedly human but i think what neanderthal does it provides um us our glimpse of our closest um other human you know rel relatives on the planet I and mean, it gives us gives us a window into other ways of being human potentially they are the definitive other aren't they in that sense they sure. are and they'll never stop being that and that's no, exactly and, and how other they are will constantly be reassessed and reassigned and however much great archaeology we do and however much we try and change people's perception of neanderthals neanderthals are always going to play a cultural role in modern culture and yeah, that's something yeah, that's never gonna we're never gonna shake that and I, I think you know even if we found the most amazing smoking gun of of evidence um you know of, of them doing something completely you know what we would think of as modern painting caves whatever um we would move the goalposts um and then there would be you know a, a group of people who would say well i don't know about that you know we, we we don't know about this other thing um i think you know for sure they that because they have been 
part of of our understanding of of where we've come from since we almost knew the depth of antiquity you know they they've been that other for so long um i think that we kind of need them to be a bit a bit uh a bit beyond us yeah yeah, yeah. it's quite an interesting um, i think i'd like to read an extract from the first book of the gene mls cover series which is the clan of the cave bear um because it would fit really well here um and it's on page 32 <laughs> Are you sure your healing magic will work on her? She's not clan. It should. The others are human too. You remember mother telling about the man with the broken arm, the one her mother helped. Clan magic worked on him, although mother did say it took him longer to wake up from the sleeping medicine than expected. It's a shame you never knew her, our mother's mother. She was such a good medicine woman. People came from other clans to see her. It's too bad she left to walk the spirit world so soon after you were born, Isa. She told me about that man herself, so did Bog Er before me. He stayed for a while after he recovered and hunted with the clan. He must have been a good hunter. He was allowed to join a hunting ceremony. It's true, they are human, but different too. Bog Er stopped. Isa was too astute. He couldn't afford to say too much or she might begin to draw some conclusions about the men's secret rituals. Now, what's so good about that extract, I think, is that the clan in the Clan of the Cave Bear are the Neanderthals. And that is a, 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 that's a, a section where the medicine man of the clan and the medicine woman are talking about us. They're talking about the others who are the Homo sapiens. Um, I think it's lovely to turn that round and think about what they would have thought about us. Absolutely. Especially, yeah. as, you know, probably when the first encounters were being made between Neanderthals and modern humans, it, it's more likely it would have been in established Neanderthal territories where modern humans would have been, um, you know, potentially the incomers, the, the ones in smaller numbers, even if that did change quite rapidly later. So, yes, we would have had the experience, our species, of being the other being in an environment where we didn't know how it worked we didn't know which plants were edible we didn't know we, we know where the animals were we were yeah we would have been effectively the other lost in a in a new landscape yeah the the other um the, the first sort of great evocation of that is uh, william golding's the inheritors um that's a fantastic book um, it's similar sort of idea that it's set from the perspective of, of a Neanderthal group with uh, modern humans incoming, but um, it's it's written far less accessibly in a way than the kind of the cave bear is because it's very much more simplified um, and internalised sort of thoughts and feelings and things like this. But it's it's a fantastic other um, book if people want to. To, uh, to read sort of that, that different view of, of encounters, as it were. There's, there's, there's another thing with, with the Inheritors and, and Clan of the Cave Bear in that they both attempt to try and describe, in a literary way, a different way of thinking, yeah. a, a, diff, a different brain organisation. Now, the, in the Inheritors, it's very much a kind of a literary experiment in how, you know, William Golding, you know, trying to work out how do you write about memories where memories are stored in a different way where memories are kind of conjured up by a group and some some individuals have far more uh, well-developed sort of memory system than others and it, it, it's, it's, it's quite obscure and opaque and there is it's honestly i've got to confess it, it's been a long time since i read clown of the cave bear so i'm channeling my my own you don't reread it every year matt <laughs> no i haven't read it since i was 16 or maybe even 15 but it did make a big impact so hopefully i can remember quite a bit of it but there they had a kind of a collective memory that they would tap into as well and that was something that was quite quite different to how modern humans thought and i, I think that's quite brave I, you know although it did uh, kind of go into uh a kind of a spiritual framework for understanding this that may just be an explanation you know what actually underlay it that there is a cognitive difference between the way this human species thinks compared to this other human species and you know that's an interesting thing to try and think about i think it was and it was um what i didn't this um, um explain when i read that extract was that 
majority of that language, as depicted by Jean and Owl in Planet of the Cave, there uh, is sign language um, that, uh, that the Neanderthals are using. Now, do you have any evidence of that Neanderthals had spoken language? What what could what is the evidence for the language? I, uh, I think that. When she wrote that, I think that people's view on it was more negative than it is now. Um, I think um, in terms of the physical capability to make uh, sort of complex noises, as it were, um, I think that's why she gave them uh, sign language as well, or one major reason for it. Um, I think now that uh, slightly, you know, it's several decades on, um, I think broadly the evidence is that they, based purely on anatomy, they probably couldn't make all the extensive fine sort of muscle controls to, to you know, make long sentences as I'm doing now, barely thinking about controlling my breath, I'm just doing it. Um, I think some people would argue that that wasn't possible. Other people might um, argue that the, the pitch of the voices were different, things like this, but I think broadly the issue about whether they could make sounds easily, I think people generally would say that they probably could, but whether they did and then the form of vocal language that they may have had is a completely open question. Mm. Yeah, we, I must point out that the book was first published in 1980, so uh, it's now 35 years um, since that, and, and obviously things have changed. They, they have studies over that time. This is what horrifies me about the idea of them accurate to the to to the novels themselves it's going to be so out of date in terms of the science well it'd be interesting to know if they've asked anybody to consult on it i'm sure they have if they haven't then i'm sure me and becky are available (laughs) (laughs) but no they must have done surely i mean you know you think of ron howard and apollo 13 and how meticulously that was researched it must be but how are, it's going to be really interesting to see what accommodations they're going to make for yeah. um, the development well, that, in the meantime. That reminds me of what you said about the makeup at the beginning, Kim, because um, her wearing black makeup, I don't, you know, back in the day that, that was probably artistic license, but actually now there is some evidence that Neanderthals had a thing for black pigments. So that actually, I don't know whether they have based it on evidence, but they could argue if they were asked, you know, maybe it is that, that they have used more recent work that does suggest that some Neanderthal sites, they were using uh, black pigments for things, what we don't know that they were using for, but they were definitely doing things with it. They also have a thing for raptor feathers and vulture claws, so they would be like total goth death. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see that. That would be fantastic. I could definitely dress up like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was, yeah, I was wondering as well about if we were talking about whether the human. We talked about language, um, but so they had, uh, and you said Becky that maybe if we found irrefutable evidence that they had um, painted some caves, then that would be a, a really awesome thing and and might convince people that they were human. So if they're going to be using pigment and they have uh, they're wearing uh, decoration, then clearly they've got some kinds of um, culture. Well, this is the this is the complication with archaeology. <laughs> we the pigment evidence is that we know that they at some sites, not all sites, but at some sites where people have looked very very carefully, um, they have found uh, manganese black pigment, which has been used, uh, been, been scraped or, or abraded onto something soft. What that was was it skin? Was it leather? What was it? Is uncertain mm. why someone is doing that is also uncertain um there you could come up with practical uses for that potentially something to do with i don't know camouflage and hunting there's there's a lot of different interpretations you could put on that mm. the raptor feathers thing i think the evidence is pretty certain that they are um processing the bodies of of uh, birds from the crow families and also uh, birds of prey raptors eagles vultures um for the big primary wing feathers um so you can't argue that it, they they're after the down for insulating i don't know in, in their shoes or something mm. they're after these big feathers 
then the argument is, well, what do you want the big feathers for? And yes, the the publications that these were proposed in have said it, the only things that make sense is, is symbolic use. Uh, similarly, because there have been talons found um, that have been very carefully defleshed and, and, and kept. Um, I, I still think that it's possible to argue practical uses for those things. Um, but, you know... <sighs> Whether one is more likely than the other at the moment, I'm not sure is clear. But I think if you look at the totality of all the evidence from the Neanderthal record, and then you compare it to the very early human record that we have from Southern Africa, then that starts to look very similar. And the capacities that we are happy to endow the early modern humans in Southern Africa, you know, we're talking 100,000 plus in, in that area. If we're going to say that they're capable of symbolic thought because of engraved things, use of pigments, X, Y, Z, then if we see the same thing on a large scale for the Neanderthals, then I think we need to have an open mind about, you know, perhaps it wasn't, um, we don't need to always sort of have 100% watertight evidence for non-practical use if you have this aggregate body of evidence. Yeah. Now, I think, I think, go on. Oh, sorry. No, I was, I was going to say, I think um, a lot that will, a lot that comes out from the book is all about these kind of hardwired differences between Neanderthals and modern humans. And, and one of the, one of the good balance things about it is that I think it's obvious to anyone reading the book and obvious um, what Gene Al was actually trying to get across was both of these populations are human. They both consider themselves human. They both recognize each other as human, even if they recognize each other as being, you know, something quite different and alien and ugly. And that ugliness is talked about a lot and goes both ways. Yeah. Um, but the big difference between them seems to be in that book is modern humans have a, a capacity for cultural transmission and innovation, whereas the Neanderthal knowledge seems somehow kind of hardwired. Whether that's hardwired into a kind of kind of cultural indoctrination that you can't work your way out of because, you know, this is how it's always been done and this is how things are passed down or whether um, it's actually something that's far more hardwired. But Ayla is constantly coming up against this. She, she can't quite uh, grasp some of the routine technology quick enough i think they think that was one thing that sort of kind of held her back but yeah she, she can't so, memorize things as quickly as them that's it she had to she had to just she had and she yeah she had, she had a, a workaround for that somehow but she could also innovate things but those innovations didn't transform um well didn't transform directly in a constructive way i don't think the neanderthal group eventually she she had to leave them didn't she but then she continued to innovate and innovate these new things which uh can then then get transferred on culturally yeah. and culture is the thing that it really comes down to are the differences between neanderthal and modern humans you know due to the big differences in their anatomy or the way their brains were wired or is it simply down is it simply down to culture is it simply down to they lived in smaller populations any innovations were less likely to take hold or they were likely to wipe out when a, a group became locally extinct where whereas modern humans once we started dispersing and our populations um started growing innovations spread through much more quickly um and I think that'd be nice to to see how that's dealt with if there is a reboot of this. Uh, yeah, this I think the the um, uh, the teaser trailer um, that they put out recently was focusing a lot on uh, women's lib, actually, wasn't it? It was it was on um, how Ayla had to um, uh, had to be a strong woman, um, and particularly on the problems that she um, faced being a Homo sapiens woman in a, a Neanderthal um, cat group where in the in the Clam the Cave Bear world there were very very strict um, regulations about what women did and could do and how they talked to the men and the fact that they did all the work uh, which was also something that Ayla came up against quite frequently uh, and uh, was basically in that teenage mode of I don't see why I should be following his orders um, I'm much better than he is uh, and obviously suffered for it uh, throughout the book. So she is she's beaten and she is raped. So I would like 
to just take the opportunity to say to any teachers out there who might listen to this podcast because of uh, my uh, connection with schools prehistory and the idea of teaching Stone Age in uh, primary schools, don't use this book. (laughs) It is not suitable for children. Um, There is a pretty good amount of sex in the book, including rape. Um, so you don't want to, to actually use this book. Um, there is a book that was written for children um, called Little Nose. Look at the Little Nose stories. And you get some of the same um, themes being described, but there, it's definitely at a much, much better level. We might talk about that at a, in, a, in a podcast at a later date. Um, yeah. But funnily enough, you know, most people I know have encountered this book as teenagers. I mean, yes. It, it, <laughs> Even if even if it was a book that you know yeah has got is definitely probably not age suitable material. It was one of those books that was available in the eighties that uh, every, it, everyone read. I think uh, yeah. some people it may have been that their mum was reading it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, but I'm, I'm thinking at the moment most kids are learning about Stone Age age seven, so I think it's definitely not for them. <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely not. not. Um, but there does seem to be much more evidence of. Um, Human and uh, Neanderthal interbreeding. Who wants to, to um, say a few words about that? Well, I was thinking when you were talking about it, um, the book actually, Kim, and you were talking about how Ayla is in, um, you know, embedded in this Neanderthal group and stuff. That that's actually something that is um, almost looking like it's potentially almost the reverse of of what we are finding is is reality and that in those books it's kind of depicted that any breeding is is very unusual and you know really oh something quite you know outside socially accepted bounds and and things that happen by accident or by force things like this um i think since we found out um not so long ago that that the evidence is is now pretty strong that there was interbreeding the more that um, I mean, I'm not a geneticist, so this is kind of dark arts to me. But the more that people are looking at it in terms of different um, samples and increasing the amount of data that's um, that we have to work with, it seems that there may have been a lot more breeding going on than we thought. Um, which then brings up the situation of well, who's raising the children? Um, you know, is it modern humans are raising mixed children or or when the antitol group's doing this or both so you know the situation that maybe some people felt was contrived of having Ayla grow up in a neanderthal group um or some of the other children because the reverse is also true in some of the later books um there are mixed children growing up with the modern human groups um we perhaps need to start actually really thinking through what were the the social setups around that how did that function and and were some of the um finds from a while ago of skeletons of of children that looked very mixed in i think there's one in portugal for example um if that's going to be tested genetically was that really a mixed child because i think the burial context for that looks very modern humanish um so you know something that seemed maybe a little bit fake for her you know for storytelling purposes that has now become archaeological reality that's quite yeah. Still on that. what were you going to say yeah no in that sense it was quite ahead of its ahead of its time because well it, that's that's the question is it real or is it owl in this <laughs> <laughs> and in that case it was it was real and owl definitely yeah, bit, she got a lot right <laughs> it wasn't until really trink you know trink house was really sort of um championing these anatomical um uh, specimens that looked like they could potentially be hybridization but it was it was almost what 15 20 years yeah. until yeah. the genetics caught up with it and it's still in its infancy that the genetics um isn't yet telling us a, a clear picture but potentially the picture it's going to be able to tell us in the future is going to be quite sophisticated it is going to be able to tell us potentially the balance um to which you know, there there are uh, Neanderthal males versus Neanderthal um, Neanderthal females in, involved in this in, interbreeding. Yeah. Is, think... is there any demographic to it? But the the scenario that's presented in Clan of the Cave Bear of effectively an orphan child being adopted by a Neanderthal group, I think is perfectly plausible. I mean, they are they are a human species. We know what we would do if if we even found an abandoned fox cub or something. 
we, we, yeah. we respond to it and even it would be even more so to to a human child as well so you know we 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 often glibly say, you know, the, the period of overlap is going to have been so long. The geographical range is so wide. You imagine any scenario of Neanderthal modern interaction and it's likely to have happened. So yeah. um, it's, it's just we might get a, a feeling in the next decade or so of what would be the, the more typical um, uh, reaction and some of the finer details of it. Yeah, I think this is something that's really interesting about the archaeology at the moment. It's it's so fast moving um and because people have become very specialized in different areas of research you know you have people that work on paleogenetics people that specialize like me and matt in stone tools um and then people that work on other aspects when things change within those different areas everybody else has to play catch up and work out how that impacts their field and i think you know what some people were saying with the genetic evidence initially was that oh it looked like there was only very small interactions um you know maybe it was quite limited early on uh, yeah whereas i think now even really recently i think there was um something that was uh, publicized at a conference or something from a romanian site that was uh, mm. tested a modern human where the i think the if i'm remembering it right the admixture was only a couple of generations before this person um which kind of you know statistically how likely are we to find that level of closeness if it's not very likely so that kind of implies on a broader scale that you know this must have been very very frequent indeed um you know people you didn't have to be an orphan to be adopted into another group there must have been large-scale interaction but that doesn't match other things like if you look at the way people have been refining radiocarbon dates recently um the radiocarbon dates for most of europe at least say that there was no overlap between the groups and this is based on dating of remains associated with particular archaeological cultures so at the moment the picture is so detailed but in very small parts of our evidence that joining it all up together is a is a massive challenge yeah it's i mean the field has got so much bigger really since since Al was writing this first book and um i thought it was a really a big shame when in the later books um you hardly get to see any of the Neanderthals again because Ayla leaves sorry if this is this a spoiler if you haven't read them Ayla leaves the club of the cave bear because she has had um a child by one of the men there um, who she leaves behind and it is going to be brought up by the clan um and she but she is cast out um and then goes on to find mod- other modern humans like herself um but the um then she yeah i was expecting her to come across other neanderthal groups and she made her way slowly across from where she starts which is around the black sea area i think um over to france eventually (laughs) um and she comes across like less than half a dozen other neanderthals or um neanderthal homo sapien mixed children as well she comes across a couple more i mean so is that was that um uh, actually using the evidence that, that said that the majority by this point which is around about 25,000 years ago isn't it I think the books are set well yeah there's I another big earlier, but... well I was I I think when she was writing she was setting it sort of around 26 27,000 years ago so again that's there is going to be associated with this reboot there is going to be publicity about it they are even if they don't of course the neanderthals aren't going to be saying hey it's twenty six thousand BP." <laughs> but certainly in all the publicity around it they're going to be mentioning it and this is one of the things that has has changed we've now changed the setting hugely it would you know we'd have to stick it back well if we wanted to actually have some auric nations in there and tenuously push the neanderthals it'd be hard to know where to stick them but you know we'd be we'd be increasing it by by ten thousand years or more so these these are things that it would be nice to to see change it's, a, it's almost it's uh, what, what what stops me for instance from writing anything and i have had thoughts about uh, this is not my period at all later prehistory is my period um but i always feel slightly um uh um 
I I feel, oh, what's the word, uh, when you can't do anything. You're paralysed. I feel paralysed that that I can't write anything because I know that it's going to change in (laughs) in a couple of years and all my um, interpretation that I put into any story is going to be wrong again. Um, there's something quite brave about get uh, that's about Gina Owl going out there writing this huge saga, um, yeah. this period yeah. where uh, when she first started writing there wasn't a great deal known, um, and uh, and and creating actually what's what's a very engaging story out of this as well. Well, again, to, to contrast it with the Inheritors, you know, one of the one of the reasons I think the Inheritors will be timeless is it hasn't got those specifics. It hasn't got that kind of very self-conscious, definite setting. You've really got no idea where it is. In fact, you've got no idea which species you're really dealing with now. We probably think they're much older. It's it, it, it's all vague. Al was yet yeah, working with um, a much more kind of, well, a fairly, fairly restricted database of sort of well-known sites and individuals. And, you know, I... I remember going through actually studying Neanderthals later on and then realizing, oh, yeah, look, there's there's that individual or there's that particular site. So it's kind of a a completion of all of the the 1970s top 10 prehistoric, uh, early prehistoric sites all in there. It's very specific and very brave in that way. But, Yeah. yeah, it does date it. But to be fair to her, though, to be fair, she got an awful lot right. And one of the joys of this of these books, certainly for me anyway, the thing that I really enjoyed, aside from the story of, you know, someone who was a teenage girl, you know, and that chimed with me when I was a young person is is the insane amounts of detail she goes into in terms of describing the environments, the climate, the animals, the hunting techniques, the, the ways that stone tools are made, the, yeah. the uses of plants. I love that. And, you know, she must have put in so much time to research, you know, things like uh, how women in hunter-gatherer groups carry children when they're nursing them and things like this because all the detail is in there. And, yeah, as it is an amalgam it's 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 been something that's kind of you know thrown a lot of detail in and and mixed it up to create her own thing which means that there's always going to be inaccuracy when you try and put it compare it to a real thing but overall the books are amazingly um sort of positive in in the amount of of archaeological detail that she does manage to get in there that isn't sort of horrendously out of place yeah absolutely i i agree and i think um they must have influenced um, so many people to actually go and study Paleolithic archaeology. Oh, for sure, me. Definitely. <laughs> um, not the film, obviously, but the books. <laughs> yeah. I like the film. I don't know what's wrong with the film. Whoa! I don't know what that sound was. I don't really remember the film. I have to say, I know I've seen it, but I just, I. Oh. I think it was a while I was uh, still quite young, so I was not really very impressed that it, it didn't have, you know, there was no discussion about striking platforms. <laughs> no, there was there was no there was no detail in it at all. But I, I can remember I remember going and finishing it and finding out. Actually, I think I may have seen the movie before I read the book. Oh, Matt, okay. No, all right, okay. I'm gonna ta- I'm gonna I'm gonna share with you this this anecdote of of how I first encountered Clan of the Cave Bear. I was in a chemistry lesson on a table with Angela Lum and we were making iron oxide and I stuck a stripe across my face and she started painting her face and she said it's just like Clan of the Cave Bear and I said what's Clan of the Cave Bear and she said you have to see Clan of the Cave Bear <laughs> and so <laughs> I went and saw the movie yeah and I think that was probably yeah my first that cinematic... mean that you saw it in the cinema Matt no no down the video shot uh, <laughs> um, probably using my parents card <laughs> Yeah. Oh, video <laughs> yeah. VHS. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's probably lots of lots of uh, archaeologists who probably first encountered Neanderthals through uh, through Clan of the Cape. The question is, who will admit to it? <laughs> <laughs> I reckon most will. Yeah. Yeah. Is it is it actually um uh is it shameful to have enjoyed Clan of the Cape? There. I depends how much you enjoyed it. <laughs> Well, in the... <laughs> whether you finished the sole lot of the books or not, because we're talking Clan of the Cave Bear, but actually my favourite book was the next one, The Valley of Horses, where she, she's she been banished and she just goes off and lives by herself in a valley 
uh, just survives, just does really cool bushcraft yeah. stuff, domesticates a horse, <laughs> yeah, and, and a lion. She just actually, she's awesome in in that book, and it's only really towards the end of the book where this um, this other modern human dude um, ends up, oh. you know, finding her, and and you know, then it's all ruined, really. But <laughs> does it get a bit boring after that? No, but different. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I found it quite quite interesting that Ayla is credited with inventing quite a few different things, uh, and inc- uh, including with her now modern human um, uh, part- life partner eventually. Because I have read all the books, even the most recent yeah. one, Land of Land of Pains, yeah, um, where they invent monogamy. So that oh, was really exciting. Oh, I haven't what read do you mean that. Invent monogamy? How do you invent monogamy? <laughs> well, it just wasn't Didn't... the way that I, th- I love that um, Owl goes into it, the whole of uh, relationships that people might have had with their, you know, their parents or people who might have looked after them or the people who initiated you into sex and also the people who you spent who you, you share your heart with um, and uh, whether or not you have exclusive exclusive access to sexual um, intercourse just with them or not. Um, and that is eventually sorted out at the end. Um, Does she invent an actual doctrine then? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, it's it's just for them, obviously, but the, the, um, uh, the impression that you get is that this idea spreads um, throughout the uh, um, Homo sapiens world. And, uh, and there you go. That's how I, that's, oh, that's I think I might miss that one then. I won't bother with that one. <laughs> it's still quite good, I have to say. Apart from that, that was a bit weird. But um, I enjoyed reading that one. Um, but I did come to them quite late, which is why I didn't become a Paleolithic archaeologist, I guess. <laughs> it, is, it does seem, it is, from my memory, I've only, I've only read the first three books. So that's uh, Clan of the Cave Bear, Valley of Horses and Mammoth Hunters. Was that the yes. third one? Yeah. Um, and this this thing of Ayla... Ayla innovating and inventing i mean that it's it's a, it's something that comes up again and again um it's quite an exciting exciting plot device but you know again i guess in terms of the perspective that gives on how innovation happens in the archaeological records you know i guess that's something that i'd find quite jarring coming to it now as a as an adult because you know innovation one thing that we can see in the archaeological record it it isn't really individuals that that make it happen it's groups and populations that make that happen even if it's one individual who has the has the spark it that individual having it on their own in a valley are going to be so prone to getting wiped out that it's unlikely that that will sustain it's the individuals actually supported and can specialize and develop a, a detailed understanding of, of a particular technology yeah um, by their society that's going to develop well a, i think a great well, idea yeah, but i think you're being a bit, a bit harsh on it because uh, it isn't just saying there it is uh, all of the humans that the modern humans she encounters along the way have um have this this um, urge or this spark to to innovate and um, it's it's as you say it is about how they're supported and how that idea gets spread in their population and then of course Ayla and John Delar take all of those ideas on their journey with them and share them with all the other Homo sapiens that they ever meet um, and you know teach them how to use yeah, the yeah, yeah. Um, the atlatl and teach them how to use the needle. Um, and teach them about um, about domestication <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and about uh, monogamy as well. And it, um, it, I think, I think that she she didn't fall into the trap of making every new thing. Absolutely no. no. But, um, I'm I'm characterising it. Oh God, but is that is that the sub narrative of uh, of of owl that this is this is about humans domesticating themselves is that what this is yeah it could be it'd be interesting to look at the backgrounds a bit more about that i should have done some research (laughs) do we know anything about her background no 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 unfortunately not that's um that would be quite useful wouldn't it there's not a great deal of information about her um in the books apart from the fact that she wrote the wrote the books and did lots of research 
is it true she's actually now supports research as well or has done in the past i don't know yeah i i i, I think that's the case have to look it up yeah. i think when you're talking about innovation though that's that is something that i think is to some extent a bit different from the books um in terms of how it how we see Neanderthals now there has been for quite a while the view that Neanderthals are pretty inflexible and sort of just had this boring unchanging same way same way same way of doing things for ages and um you know she sort of formalized that in in the books by saying that they were you know incapable of of innovating that that they just really struggled to have new ideas because they were so set in their ways essentially that it had become a a niche an adaptation to be like that um, but I think we would probably um, have a slightly more positive view of Neanderthals, although um, they do seem to have technological traditions that are incredibly long-lived. They're also diverse. They're not all the same everywhere. And they do have different um, sort of inventions, as it were, that, that happen over time. They, they invent, uh, as far as we can see, the earliest synthetic material in birch bark pitch. Um, which they use for hafting things. Um, and all that we look at things like um, hafting, you know, putting handles on, on tools rather than using them just in your hand. Um, the, the more careful studies that are done about that, it looks like that was actually really important. Um, there's a, a, a study that's been done on a site um, from Northern Europe where something like almost 45% of the stone tools that were looked at very carefully under microscopes um, showed evidence that they were hafted, um, which is a huge proportion. Uh, and, you know, that's something that, that's, I think, changing the way that we, that we think about their capacity to innovate and to be flexible. I think that's the thing that I think is the huge difference now. We understand the Antitiles as a really flexible species, um, and that's completely contrary to how they're portrayed in those books. Mm. Yeah. It would be nice to, if that was updated um, in, the, in these uh, TV shows, because otherwise the, this whole idea of the Antitiles will be, uh, being inflexible will be, um, will be uh, uh, um, told to the next generation of people who, are in, who, who see this and get enthused by this, um, this story. Um, you're, um, you, both of you, are, well, you've done some work um, and actually dug up little bits and pieces. What are the actual things that you find then on site? So, Becky, you work at, uh, you've done some work at South Cesar, among other places, for instance. Oh, I, I dug there literally for one day as a guest. One day? Oh. <laughs> No, my, my colleague here, um, Brad Gravina, yeah, he's excavating the San Césaire site um, with, with her, a team. Um, and that's a site where there's essentially one of the, the, I think it's the first time that we found a Neanderthal skeleton in association with what are called transitional industries. So archaeological cultures that, in terms of the stone tools, that look like they are a mix of Neanderthal type stuff and what we see later on only made by modern humans. That's a very gross description of what is incredibly complicated archaeology that is debated hugely. But that's a site where there is a Neanderthal in association with these things. Um, and so, yeah, so I got to dig there for a day. That was incredible, actually, because the density of finds in, in that site is just insane. I mean, you have to use a total station, like which is a 3D uh, ranging thing to plot the finds as you excavate them. And, you know, basically everybody there is, is sort of shouting up, stone tool, bone, stone tool, bone, stone tool. But, you know, there's so much stuff that it's just continuously being used to plot and you have to, you can't dig fast at all. Um, compared to sites, you know, that I know from from the uk and, and just the difference in the density of the material was incredible mm. um and matt you um you're going to be doing some work in jersey is it la Cotte de saint Bernard? yeah well we've been we've been working on jersey now for for about six years and with la Cotte, we're working mainly on the archive our excavations there um aren't very sort of extensive in in size and the artifact densities are relatively low in the areas we're digging but yeah as, as becky was saying about census there you know when you've got an occupation level the density of material in a neanderthal occupation site is absolutely enormous and um in the channel islands there's there's no good available flint so all of the raw material that's 
there is either poor quality local materials that's coming in in large amounts or um, beach pebble flint which is being used to make fairly rubbishy tools but then you get these gorgeous pieces of high quality flint just hints of them really that um, come off much nicer tools that have been transported and resharpened much longer distances and I guess what me and Becky both try and do you know in our in our discipline which is archaeology um, working with stone tools is try and reconstruct behavior you know, we, we don't have data sets that can tell you what a Neanderthal looked like or, or what the anatomy was like or what the genetic signature was like or even, you know, what they were they were eating from their isotopes. But what we can say is what was a Neanderthal individual or group doing here in this location? Um, and, and we can compare that against the record for modern humans as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, know, I'm, I, I'm interested I, in the raw material side of it. So the work I'm doing in France is looking at um, landscapes. So, you know, Matt's working on this absolutely amazing uh, single, very deeply occupied site in Jersey. Um, and the scale I'm looking at is, is landscapes, basically, tying together the different individual places where we know uh, groups were active. Um, you know, caves are an obvious thing, open air sites, but also I'm really interested in how the raw material sources for the stone um, tie into all those. So you end up with these, you know, webs of connections between sites um, across huge areas. Um, and so that's what, what I'm really interested in, in looking at. Essentially, it's mobility, um, trying to trace uh, trace how people move, because, you know, we know that they were mobile, and there's lots of different angles in, in looking at that. But it's so challenging um, to actually reconstruct that from an archaeological record that's static. Yeah, absolutely. And that has had so much um, uh, reworking over time as well, a lot of it. Some of it, uh, obviously, if you're getting um, rock shelves or cave sites, then you're in a much better position. But... Um, Sometimes some some cave sites can be a little bit tricky as well. I mean, that, I think that's one of the main uh, things that's been moving the discipline forward in some ways is is people looking again at old sites where we thought we knew what was going on and reassessing the history of those deposits. And, you know, are they really trustworthy to come to the conclusions that we think we have? Or has that material moved? Has it been disturbed? Especially for these sites like Saint-Césaire and, and other key sites in, in these big debates about who was where, when, who was interacting with who, was there cultural exchange? These sites, we need to know them inside out um, in terms of the what's called the taphonomy, so the history of what's happened to that site and all the archaeology within it. Mm. Well, thank you very much for, um, for all this discussion. I think um, that we're, our conclusion is that the Clan of the Cave Bear is um, fantastically good fun, uh, and uh, but maybe a little bit of a product of its time, and uh, hopefully the upcoming TV series, if it gets um, uh, if it if it gets through its pilot, will actually um, take on board some of these more recent developments in um, Neanderthal archaeology and possibly genetics as well. Um, so I'd like to thank my guests very much, Matt Pope and Becky Rag Sykes. Thank you for talking to me. It's been a really good fun. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's been great. Um, and I'd like, so I just got to say that the Clan of the Cave Bear details will be underneath the podcast if you want to buy it, if you have never read it before. Um, and it is the first in a series of books um, that are actually called Earth's Children by Jean M. Owl. Uh, and they're published by Hodron Stoughton. I should point out once again, they're not suitable for children, uh, but they're very good fun for adults. Um, there'll also be the links to get in contact with my guests um, underneath the podcast. Um, Becky, how, what's the best way that people could find you, possibly? Um... Um, well, I, I'm contactable on Twitter. Uh, my tweet is uh, at Lemoustier. Um, I also have a blog, which is uh, therocksremain.org, um, and people can email me through there as well. There's contact details on both of those things. Lovely. And Matt, what's the best way to contact you? Um, well, my email address is there on the university website at the Institute of Archaeology at UCL, and I also hang out on Twitter, and I'm under at Matthew Pope. That's nice and easy. Thank you very much. Um, 
So, listen in to future episodes where I'm going to be talking to the Twilight Beasts team, which is Rhea McGuire, Ross Barnett and Jan Friedman, about the animals in Clive the Cave Bear, because there's, uh, as we've discussed today, there's really amazing descriptions of uh, the animals that are around uh, during the time that Ava was, um, uh, was there, about the animals that are around during Ayla's story, um, and uh, we're going to also go forward in time to the Iron Age in a future episode where I'm going to talk to Rachel Pope and Francis Pryor about The Ravens, which is a book about Ravensborough Castle and Iron Age Hillfort by James Dyer. So listen in to uh, the next podcasts to hear more from Priya's stories. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.